Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. Plus, this April, annual sign-ups receive a free powder detox edition beauty box worth £55. For more information, visit sheerlarksvip.com. It was in 1984, when looking for a cup and saucer for her mother, that Emma Bridgewater decided she was going to create her own. Fast forward over 30 years, and the rest really is history. Today, Emma employs over 300 members of staff and has a business with a turnover of over 20 million. She started the business on her own, but today, alongside her husband, she's still responsible for all the designs of a brand that has become synonymous with images of an idyllic family kitchen. Describing herself as a silhouette that people project themselves into, Emma Bridgewater really is every woman's story. Welcome to the Sherlock Success Stories podcast. In each fortnightly episode, we delve into the stories behind some of the most successful entrepreneurs and careers we've seen. In this week's episode, we are joined by Emma Bridgewater. Welcome, Emma Bridgewater, to your Sherlock Success Story. Take us back to the beginning, 30 years ago, and that moment when you saw a gap in the market? I was actively looking for an idea for a business. I worked in the run-up to that moment, I should explain, that I'd, um, I worked for two girls not far from here who designed knitwear rather successfully. And I left them after 18 months with, for me, a princely sum of about £300 in the bank and a burning desire to start a, a creative business. So I was cruising the, the shops. I was thinking all the time about what was it going to be? And I thought it was probably something to do with books because I read English at university. And then I just had that magic moment that I think people do really, really dream of uh, standing in a shop thinking about mum and wanting to give her a present that said how much I loved her and missed her and wanted to spend more time with her but didn't quite currently have time. And it happened, that, that golden ka-ching, there's, it doesn't exist, the thing I need so badly. And when I think about it, if I need it, everyone does. I was in a china shop and the the offer was just a million miles from her lovely, relaxed, welcoming, cosy kitchen. And I and there thought, it was. Yeah. I could in my mind's eye there was that busy dresser and I was gonna I was gonna fill it up. So what happened next? I asked a grown up friend, a graphic designer. A grown up friend. A grown up friend. <laughs> He said, "Oh, I was there last week. I've been working in. I've been doing some work for a brewery, and we had to we had to work with a with a modeler here. And he literally patted his pockets, found a business card, handed it over, and I went to put it in my pocket. He went, no, 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 write it on your fag packet because I you know I want to stay in touch with him. And I duly did that. And Terry said, and and do call him. It's a really great idea. I bent his ear with my plan, 
And he said, um, and when you've been to see Sam, come back and, and tell me about it and, um, you know, go for it, girl. And so I rang this number and a nice, friendly guy said, sure, I can see you next week. At which point I started scrabbling to draw some shapes. And are you an artist? No, but I do come from the kind of family where we all think we can draw. Okay. We all think we're rightfully artistic and good at painting and stuff like that. So, yeah, I sat down and drew a mug and a bowl and a jug and a dish. And I took them up to Stoke-on-Trent. And that train journey changed my life. So when we see a piece of pottery with an orange on it, did you draw that? Okay, if it's a spongeware pattern, I probably did. If it's, um, say, the toast and marmalade. You know, yes, the nice, yes, of course I did. Nice I put it in my house. Contrary to popular belief, I do not sit down and write toast and marmalade a million times <laughs> at my own kitchen table. That's my husband's beautiful calligraphy, usually my copy, sort of printed as a transfer and hand applied to the wear. So the spongeware designs I do. And spongeware was just a great lucky strike because if you're starting out with no cash, which was me, not having to buy a lot of print is absolutely vital. And the fact was I cut out each sponge myself. and um, So it had that unique look. Yes. I had a, a really interesting level of control over the motifs that were going to be printed on the wear. I mixed all the colours. It was strange thinking about it now. I, I just sort of plunged in and, and Sam, this guy I found... So you, went, yeah, so, you, so you went to see he Sam. He just said, and I sort of watched how his factory worked and sort of adapted what I saw. And I, I watched his girls decorating, oh, big pub ashtrays, those halcyon days when smoking was not the work of the devil. And I reckoned that the time it took them to hand apply a transfer, the same girls would be capable of putting on the, the printed spongeware pattern that I had in mind, even though I hadn't designed the patterns. I, don't, I think it ought to be mandatory. Every school should take kids on several important outings. One of them would be to a factory. So you went to see Sam. You told him your idea. He liked it. He, he had, laughed. He laughed. Oh, he laughed. Why did he, he laugh? Laughed, well, he didn't find me very easy to take seriously to begin with. And you were how old? 23. Okay. So he laughed and then he listened. And he said, oh, I can do that, girl. Yeah. Give me the drawings. They're rubbish, aren't they? Which side? <laughs> which is the right side? <laughs> he just, he, he's completely, totally typical of a Stoke-on-Trent person. Very, very funny, feisty absolutely no respecter of persons you, you've got to fight your own corner there <laughs> and he was great very direct and realized he could tease me relentlessly that's a good quality yes. i think if someone's teasing you on the first meeting i always think that's that's a good sign well, we of, got of a relationship that's straight last. away and i was really smitten with the city and the, the glamour of all those long gone the feeling of a place where beautiful beautiful things have been made for centuries and the crafts and the traditions and the skills there and you went to see him the first time what were the did you take designs with you the first time i took drawings with me on that first visit of a mug and a bowl and did those drawings become the first collection yes absolutely and all of those shapes were still making and what are they which were they the half pint mug i did know it was going to be a mug's business but i really badly wanted to tell a bigger story than that and he said never going to do plates he was only making hollowware so I thought about Mum's dresser and the sort of scene that I wanted to paint. And so I did a, a mug and a, and a little bowl to have your cereal in and a milk jug and a, and a lovely dish. So you started in. with mug, jug, plates and bowl. Bowl, you got it. Okay. And they went into production in 1984. And I started you- sampling then and I put together a sample collection. And in 1985, I had really great help from the buyers. I put together a little leaflet 
I sent it to 120 shops, some of whom I have to say still buy the stuff, which is really great. And they've been hugely important partners on, on the journey. Some of them have done terrific marketing because we were a wholesale company for ages. Right, you were. So that's that's how it started. Yes. So you, so you made your samples, you created a leaflet. Sounds very sophisticated. Oh, it was so low tech. <laughs> you can't believe it. And some of the buyers, particularly, cast your mind back to 1985. The general trading company was incredibly significant. It was sort of like a club in Sloan Square. It was a beautiful house and Tim Park filled it up with all kinds of nice kit. And the China department was sort of my second home for ages and the buyer there taught me stacks and you know she was always reading me the right act about things I was getting wrong and being very encouraging when I was getting it right. And she told me about Top Draw, a little trade fair which still goes on. Mm-hmm. I got a stand there and off I went so first of all you had this leaflet you went to these buyers and the buyers said you know sort of got me going and then through their contacts I went trade fairs I started doing top draw twice a year then Birmingham and then Paris and New York and what was selling initially okay what happened was I had no idea what a trade fair was even so I thought well I'll make it a really good party and so when you walked into the old Darien Tom's building where it used to be my buyers would just be able to stop and listen and go to the noisiest part of the place. And so it was always quite fun. You'd have to fight your way onto the stool because all my friends and family would be there for moral (laughs) support, drinking the drink. And people loved the look of it. They recoiled in horror because we were precisely twice the price of anything else. And that was why, because you were having them made in England. Yeah. And I was, well, I was going up to Stoke, buying them from a pottery and selling them to the general trading company, the Conrad shop, whoever. And they were doubling it up again. So it was expensive. And... I think I'd have gotten a right old muddle. Luckily, the price kept the desire sort of slightly in check. My only experience was fashion. I thought I was going to do two collections of different designs every year. And I set off at a great lick. (laughs) But I was going, whoa, wait, stop. We were only just getting the hang of this. You don't need to change the patterns quite so often. Oh, and you went, wow, this is easy. Oh, thank heavens. (laughs) Now, the not thank heavens bit was how heavy my samples were. At the end of each show, I'd obviously try and sell them all covertly, which you weren't supposed to do because it's just the horror of having to <laughs> lug them all downstairs. So they came to your stand, the buyers. Placed orders. They liked what they saw. They placed orders. And how had you financed it up to them? Was well, it self-financing? You got your samples? Pretty much you got was. Some refit- and one of the things I would really always say to people starting out, put your idea at risk of sale as fast as you possibly can. Get it out there, girls. See, you know, see what people like mm. and start responding to that. If you're not creating a total feeding frenzy, you're going to have to keep working on it. Yeah, it's not right. It's got to be, there's got to be a runaway desire for it. I was lucky. I mean, it was great timing. It was the right thing at the right moment. The industry was starved and it just looked like the thing that should be there. Well, it was the thing that should be there. Yeah, Thank heavens. It's that what funny we thing do without of... it in our kitchens. <laughs> Tell us about the manufacturing because... You know, you hear horror stories about manufacturing and how many things go wrong. I know you've always kept manufacturing in the UK. What, what have you learned from that process? Massively stressful and hugely worthwhile. If Sam had kept going, I'd have been very, very happy for him to be the potter and me to be the designer and marketeer. If that was not to be. His business went under. I was convinced that we had to buy it. I was had become we. I had two partners by then. Um, two business partners? Yeah. One of them being my husband. And the other one? An old boyfriend. <laughs> Oh, cosy. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, they got on very, very well. But I knew that we had to buy that factory. And quite quickly, we outgrew it and bought a big Victorian factory and used a little bit of that. And now we're using the whole of that. And that's been a big learning experience. It continues to be. It has shaped the business. And at every stage, but particularly right at the beginning, I was really resolutely urged 
not to go into manufacturing. You mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't. Let someone else do it. Let someone do it somewhere else. You don't need to be involved. And what I think about that advice was, in some ways, they're right. We would be a bigger brand if I hadn't put so much energy into the making. But I don't think we'd be anything like as interesting a brand. And I think I personally would have lost interest a long time ago. Stoke's been the passionate thing about it for me and the people making it. And that authenticity, which is such an overused word, but it really it's comes real. across, yeah. doesn't it, in, in your brand. And you can't really put your finger on it, but it just... Well, it, that's Stoke-on-Trent. The, the, the very the thing that everyone else was rushing offshore to replace with something cheaper is the gold dust, I think, mm. in my brand. And I feel massively proud of Stoke and to be making it work there. You opened your first store in Fulham. What made you do that? We lived just 50 yards down the road, on the Fulham Road, on the traffic lights. But it wasn't the sort of hottest bit of the Fulham Road. No, it was the bit we could afford. (laughs) (laughs) So you chose Fulham purely because you lived in Fulham and you thought that was a bit easier than traipsing to Islington or wherever else you might have gone. Yeah, it just, it felt right. And Um, and talk us through that and what it's been like to own stores. How many stores do you have today? Okay, we're not big in bricks and mortar. Bricks and mortar is difficult now because the web has changed everything about how we shop. So we still have a shop in Marylebone and a shop in Fulham and the factory shops, which are very, very busy. I love having some face-to-face contact. I think it is nice to be able to go and pick it up, but I think it's fair to say that there's enough trust in the brand Mm -hmm. now. Clearly, web sales say we don't need that. But Back in the day, when there was no web? Well, exactly. It had to be bricks and mortar. What's What's the toughest thing about stores? I'm making them make money. I've always sworn the landlord must have a periscope that goes down into your till at the very minute and second when you start. You just break into starting to make money on that site. They put the rent up and there's always somebody coming in prepared to pay a crazy rent. I've always said rudely, I think that's somebody who doesn't understand the currency yet. And how do you keep retail staff loyal? I imagine you're a nice company to work for. You treat them right and talk to them and don't um, make their life a living hell. Tell us about working with your husband. So you've, you switched roles, I read. She You're switched. laughing. Why are you laughing? Because oh, it's, it's such a stressful thing to do. I, wouldn't, I would not recommend it, really. I mean, I don't know any other way, but... And what was his background? Because so, you, you were MD, and then because of you know, personal circumstances, and I know he your, had to your go mother was bit. unwell, you sort of swapped. Is that right? Yes, he did a, did a recent stint, and now someone else runs the whole show. It's got too big for either of us amateurs, let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great working together in some ways. It means you really know what's going on in each other's lives. It's boring in other ways. I mean, our kids would say, yeah, really boring. You talk about it all the time. Well, it gives you something to talk about. No, no. Maybe that's the key to a successful marriage. Work together and then there's always conversation. You won't be that couple in a restaurant sitting there with nothing to say to no, each other. No, that is definitely true. And what is the key to working with your other half? Switch off business and listen to, whether it's a piece of music or a play or a you know, book on tape, Try and get your head out of the business as much as you possibly can. How do you stay really motivated? How do you not burn out? How are you still enthused? No, it's the, well, that's the key question. And I think it is about having a passion for what you're doing. And I think, as I said about the factory, I, I think that's what's kept me engaged. Mm. I think if I was just designing and marketing, I think I probably would have seen a way to delegate that mm. and to move away from it myself whereas the factory does draw me in and I it do feel very your heart and, yeah and I feel yeah. very fascinated by it and and intrigued as to whether I can guarantee its future tell us a bit more about the 30 years that you've had what have been other sort of pivotal moments that you've talked us through approaching buyers you've talked us through the store 
what else happened in the journey that were big moments for the business and have really sort of helped scale it to that 20 million turnover? Okay, I talked a little bit early on about get your idea together, get those samples together and, and see whether people really like them so that you've got some tangible feedback that says, yes, this is going to work before you go through the grueling, write the business plan, sweet talk the bank manager, um, start to kind of scare yourself in a way with the commitment you're making. For me, it was a great sort of honeymoon, quite a few months, probably nine months of trading before I was hauled over the coals. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, my bank manager, I'd literally been trading through a current account and he'd been used to me as an overdrawn student and as a sort of someone who, you know, I was almost always overdrawn, perfect customer, but good at coming back to some small credit sum. And, and suddenly he'd noticed it was not, you know, the normal King's Road shops. It was something in Stoke-on-Trent. And it was only at that point that I had to explain myself. And I had some trading that said... It's hanging on a thread, but it does work because I walked into an industry that gave credit. And so literally I had to pay Sam on 30 days and I got the customers to pay me on 28 days. And if enough of them paid me on 28 days, half of them precisely, I could pay him. And I kept my costs to a bare minimum. I have a friend who was setting up a furniture business at the same time who was investigated three years running by the revenue. Eventually he said, look, there's nothing here. I ha- I'm not breaking any rules. Why do you keep coming back? And they said, because you cannot be living on £4,000 a year. And he said, but I am. <laughs> you know, you just live on almost nothing for ages. And you think that's key? You think... For me, it is. I mean, some people are good at, at going out and, you know, with a punchy plan and raising the cash to do it. I saw quite a few of those go down. I mm. think, in a way, the discipline... Yeah, of not having much makes yeah, you... So, you're so you were saying operating on the shoestring, yeah, you make the right decisions, you're not rash, you don't waste money. You're tight yeah. with money. And I think learning that discipline yourself, the principles you lay down at the beginning are the DNA of the business and they run on through it forever. So if you've had that kind of quite tight, we won't lash money out on mm. this or that. That, interestingly, will kind of keep on being conveyed through the years one of the hardest things is changing your methodology and i'm aware that what we make in a factory that is so much bigger than sam's concern exactly what you want the business to be and the things that really matter to you print them in early on and hang on tight to them you must have had people want to invest over the years i'm sure you've lost count of the amount of times you've been approached why have you resisted is it to maintain control I think if you were asking Matthew that question, he'd say it was to maintain control. It's not something I'm especially interested in. Have you always agreed on that? We always disagree on almost everything. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't. We disagree in the detail. The fundamentals, we're pretty 
strong on. The thing is, um, people have come to us with investment ideas. And I always say right at the beginning that the making in Stoke-on-Trent is fundamental. It's key. If you're not Mm -hmm. up for that, let's not waste each other's time. You take them to Stoke, you take them round the factory. They absolutely love it. They're as charmed as as I am continuously by the hilarious back chat and the and the the sort of raw gutsiness of it. You sit them down in the boardroom afterwards and they go, this is marvellous. But of course, you'd have to close it down. You say, yeah. which bit of my spiel have you not have understood? You not That's yeah. the end of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, tell us about your bestsellers. I think I know what you're going to say, but tell me anyway. <laughs> well, there's the marker and then there's the polka dot pattern. <laughs> Obviously, that's... I mean, it, we, are, we are a mug business because, look, we use them all, all the time and they make lovely presents. So we're hugely about mugs of all shapes and sizes. What are your top three Emma Bridgewater designs? Well, at the moment, polka dots and hearts, toast and marmalade, I'm pleased to say, still chugs along very pleasingly. That's the one I've got. Exactly. And it's always smart and it goes with everything. I regard it as the art of finding the perfect pair of jeans. When you get it right... People can't believe they haven't always had it. What we've learned is to treat, this is quite strange really, to to treat domestic pottery like fashion and to push um, a kind of constant stream of design through on the the web because that's what people really, really love. There's always new stuff. So a a design we did recently called Pansies, uh, the pink version is going completely bananas, but also the sort of multicoloured. And how do you cope with sort of Scandi design and, and sort of more modern trends in interior design? Has that affected you a lot? Minimalism, I dread it, <laughs> obviously. I've noticed there have been, in the many decades I've been at this, there have been those grim phases when people think they better you know, be all, all tidy and Scandi. It doesn't tend to last very long. And I think that we're quite good now at finding pattern that's not very patterny. Yeah. So that recently we did a sort of splatter. There's um, pattern and there's pattern. Isn't yeah, there? exactly. And some people really want lots and lots and lots of, of sort of repeating designs. And some people want something a bit more laid back. I think making nice things for your kitchen is really important. Let's talk about events and things like royal weddings or babies. I always feel like Emma Bridgewater is going to have something on one of those occasions. Are they really as lucrative as one might imagine? Do you do it for press? Okay, the joy of making your own stuff and making it in this country is you can respond to events. And that might be planning to do something to commemorate the suffragettes. And royal events have always been a huge part of the calendar in Staffordshire, in Stoke-on-Trent. We know that making lovely jugs and great big chargers and, and mugs to commemorate royal babies, royal weddings, big, you know, sort of anniversaries of jubilees, that kind of thing... It feels like it's really part of our national life and you can get the sort of cheesy, cheap and cheerful or you can get the very, very ornate and beautiful. And I really like that we can do a little different take. Yes, you definitely do it better than one of those stands on the end of Oxford Street. But <laughs> Thank I, mean, you. I, I feel reassured. Whether you like the royal family or not, you know, they're, they're big business for this country. Are they big business for you? The thing about what you just said is, at this point, when we think about Prince Harry planning his wedding 
to Meghan Markle, everyone's going, oh, you know, I probably won't watch. And, you know, very sceptical. No. Who is saying that? Well, That's such a load of rubbish. We, okay, going back to uh, Prince William's wedding, that absolutely was the tone in the newspapers. Oh, you know, we're over that kind of thing. And then closer to the time, it goes completely marvellously crazy. <laughs> and we're very, very, very excited. But I rather like that it's quite a contained event. So what are you doing for the royal wedding? We've got two very nice mugs. One just says Harry and Meghan, and the other is a bit more left field. Huh. I look forward to seeing them. When are they out? April the 19th. So what else is in the pipeline? What's coming up from Richard Water? It's so much. We work a long way ahead. We've just locked down Christmas. So we're pretty much done with spring 19. So we work a long way ahead. It feels like the business is still very much... The same today as it was when I can remember it, whenever that was that I came across Emma Bridgewater. And I think a problem for so many entrepreneurs is distractions. It feels like you've been so true to yourself all these years. Is that the case? It's very, very nice that you see it as having a consistency. Of course, we've made hideous foul-ups. Who doesn't? I mean, uh, people say, have you ever had a pattern that didn't work? So many, you can't count. But what is DK Maxx for? (laughs) (laughs) If you're doing a lot of design and if you're pushing and innovating, of course you'll get it wrong. You should always be confident and keep going and just learn how to dispose of it and get rid of it fast. Don't look at your failure because that's depressing. You're so true. When I shrink something in the washing machine, the quickest thing to do... Get rid. Quickly buy another one. Down the charity shop. you smash your favourite glass, (laughs) you've just got to buy another one. And you just have to be ruthless and say it's not going to sell at the full price discount it till it's gone and, and move, on. move on learn and move on absolutely and what has gone wrong apart from patterns that have ended up in tk maxx i mean the hardest thing continuously is recruiting the right people and training people right and if you're growing and we've never not been growing we're growing at about 15 percent at the moment that exerts huge strains learning to cope with growth and make sure that you're not really making everyone kind of suffer through it it's got to be fun. You've got to get on top of it and make that feel as if everyone's part of a, of a really positive story rather than, oh, my God, there's just so much to do. I'm drowning. And, of course, you, you do always wait to recruit and change the shape of the team, inevitably, because it's dramatic and expensive. But it's sort of timing that right. That's almost the hardest thing of all. I look back and the first two years were kind of glorious because it was just me. And the minute you start, you know, outgrow that phase and, and you start employing people, that becomes primarily what you do, really. So what drives you to keep going? Is it to hand your business over to your children? I've read that you hope one day they will step up and, and take over Emma Bridgewater. You don't plan to sell it. You want them to take the helm. Is that what drives you? That's definitely in the picture, in that it's quite a thing to build a business that has a certain stability and that is profitable. And they're obviously, our kids are at an age where they have no interest in that. You know, they haven't analysed any of that. And they're all doing their own crazy things. And that's exactly how it should be. Of course, I hope that, that one of them might pragmatically see that not just that it's a good vehicle, but they could evolve the, the sort of some of the other things we do. The book festival that I started with Tristram Hunt in the factory six years ago is kind of, you can feel there's a great big thing trying to get out there. We could be a huge arts festival, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if one of the kids was more interested in that. So is it all about them? No, I think it's probably what drives me is the relationship I have with the factory. I say it all the time, I feel so proud of the 300 and odd people who work for us in in Stoke. I'm so grateful to them. And I really very much want to try and ensure a future for them. And you said that your husband and you are no longer running it sort of day to day. Mm -hmm. Where do you fit in? And, And do they sort of quake as you come walking down the corridors? 
What's your role in the business now? I've just recently formalised my role as design director. Again, that's sort of swapping around with Matthew and I. And how do you think that works in reality for them? I think a lot of entrepreneurs have, shall we say, control freak tendencies. (laughs) Can you ever really let go? Could you ever really let go to your children? Oh, well, what Matthew and I are, are discussing at the moment is the ways in which we can disengage more and continuously with a view to making it easier for a more professional team to accelerate the growth. I think that the business is really straining to grow at the moment, which feels very exciting. And I also believe, um, Matthew and I both, that if we do disengage a little more and a little more, then the chance of the children coming in is increasing. I have lots of other things I would like to do. I've written a tiny bit. I wrote two books recently and I absolutely love that process. So the world of books does quite beckon. So you've come back to your I English might, degree. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I'd like to think that I can disengage in a rational way. And I think Matthew's probably got more of a tendency to chop her in and, and kind of worry about some details somewhere. Whereas I think um, if you've got the right reporting, you you know, you, you can keep a fix on what's going on without throwing a spanner in the works all the time. Without being too much of a control freak. It's difficult, isn't it? Cause, because you, one says that as if it's a totally bad thing. An advantage of having a name of a real person is that you have got a signature, so you might as well make use of that. You said you employ quite a lot of women. You started the business, as we said, over 30 years ago. Did you feel like you were sort of breaking boundaries as a woman starting a business back in 1984? No, it wasn't the dark ages. I grew up in Oxford in the 70s when feminism was was kind of a very real thing. And I come from a family, my mother's family, a lot of powerful women. I feel them at my shoulder. I mean, some of them going sort of back through the generations. And no, I I don't think so. And I've never really been that aware of being a woman. Being held back as a woman. It's an unreconstructed industry. And there were times when I was very aware that people just assumed men, you know, wandering around on their important business, just assumed I was another decorator or a designer. And I was just kind of grateful that I could get on with what I was doing. It never felt like a problem. And which other women have inspired you? I tend probably, as with my design sort of inspirations, to look quite a long way back. Elizabeth Fry is perhaps rather strange, but for me, very, very powerful role model. And uh, she's my five greats aunt. She was brought up in a Quaker family and the the Quakers believed in educating their daughters as much as their sons. She was just appalled by the conditions of women in prison. So she set about creating an education programme and an innovation completely characteristic of making sure that women who were being transported to Australia, if they felt so inclined, could take a kit of offcuts of material so they could make a patchwork quilt on the journey out so they'd have something to sell other than their bodies when they got to Sydney. Quite a thought, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that she did that as well as bringing up six children and running a household. So my grandmother told me about her when I was young. And I went to the kind of girls' school where we were absolutely totally sure that we, we ruled. You know, there wasn't anything we couldn't do. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I read that you had quite a bohemian upbringing do you think that's a quality you need to be an entrepreneur? I think, I think you could say that about quite a lot of entrepreneurs. You, know, you didn't follow a natural path. No, it's even been described as a guerrilla warfare. Yes, my mum was an eccentric and completely wonderful, inspiring woman. And she, I think what she taught us was quite a lot of respect for conventions. My mum was very beautiful and she had a real way of making a lovely 
house. They were places that people really wanted to be and were always in very large numbers. And she didn't care if lunch was late and slightly burnt and there were twice as many people as she'd sort of vaguely laid for. And that sort of, we can make this happen feeling and this is all going to be fun. I mean, she did, she gave us a very good template for a lovely life. She was also, I'm aware increasingly, as I grapple with my own children growing up, she was jolly lawless. And I think that's quite helpful in that she didn't take no for an answer. You know, if she needed to get whatever it was to happen, she was very persuasive. She sounds like a great woman. Oh, she was marvellous. Joie de vivre. Yes. You hear about homes like that where, you know, there were always endless people for lunch. You didn't quite know why they were there or who they'd come for, but (laughs) it was great fun and they stayed too long. Yes, sometimes for days. Love that. What qualities do you want to pass down to your children or have you tried to pass down to them? I think that they're slightly appalled by how hard I've worked. And I see them trying to, um, is there a low road they can take? I think think a good quality if there are low roads. Well, yes, I think it's... The weasel prospers. Yeah, well, (laughs) I think there's something very sensible about it. And I think that I have had a tendency to push myself really hard. And I see in them something a bit more rational and probably a bit more sustainable. I would, though, want them to understand that significant thing that I said mum taught me of, you know, don't take no for an answer. When you've you've got your plan, you're going to have to defend it and, you know, work to make it happen. Persistency is a really useful quality. And going back to you saying that your intention is not to sell the business and you're still evolving the business, you're still growing the business, you're still very involved. Do you stop and go... And I've read articles where you're quite hard on yourself and your journey... Do you stop and go, my God, I've, I have created a business that turns over 20 million, employing hundreds of people. Do you stop and go, wow, that's incredible. How did I get here? I think as an entrepreneur, you never think that. You're always thinking over the horizon. You're always, it's always about the next chapter. And I do see it as possible to turn it into a brand that, you know, a hundred million pound brand. That really excites me. And to do that, still making um, predominantly in stoke trend would be so interesting. Buck the trend. Do the thing nobody else is doing. Quite right. Thank you so much, Emma. I've loved chatting to you. And God, we would be lost as a country without Emma Bridgewater as a brand. <laughs> I truly believe. That's so sweet of you. And Thank I you. will be looking forward to seeing what you are producing for Harry and Meghan's wedding. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. See you next week. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.